Wonderful. Well, we're in a sermon series that I'm calling Emotions Remastered. And the big idea is that emotions are a huge part of our lives, and especially in our culture where we put a lot of weight on what we're feeling. Compared to other cultures, we're some of the most feelings-full and feelings-carried people in the world, maybe of all time. And so the big idea has been to seek to bring this part of our lives, our emotional life, under the lordship of Jesus. Not to say that emotions are bad or wrong or evil, um, or at least no more bad or wrong or evil than any other part of fallen humanity, but like all things, um, it belongs to Jesus. Every hair on our head belongs to Jesus. Every cell in our body belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every thought in our mind belongs to Jesus and every emotion that goes through us. And I'm not exactly sure where our emotions belong. Um, the Greeks, they just called it your guts. I have really strong guts. That's what they would often say. So there you go. So why don't we pray together? Give this time to the Lord. We're going to ask him for this to be a supernatural transaction. Amen. Would you bow with me? King Jesus, we just love you and need you so much. Lord, I thank you for your promise in Scripture that wherever two or three are gathered, you are there in our, in our midst. And so we trust that you really are here and have been here. Father, that you made the act of taking the, the bread and the juice or whatever that was. Lord, you made that count for eternity through our faith in you and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Father, here as we gather around your word, I pray that you would make us lovers of truth and that you would align us with your character and your will, that you would be renewing the image of Christ in us, and that we would really come out freer and empowered and humbled and with eyes fixed on Christ through your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. So today we're going to be talking about lovers of truth, and it comes from this passage here, and we're going to read it. It's going to be a bit of a longer portion of scripture, but before I read this, I just want to give a little plug. I'm working on something called Club Galatia. I want to do a open to the church Bible study through the book of Galatians. Why Galatians? Well, I think somebody wanted to do the book of Galatians as a Bible study, and that, that, then that got kiboshed. So I know at least one person was interested in this book. That's all it takes sometimes. And because, you know, getting together is more challenging these days, the hope is that it would lean fairly heavily on distance learning, but making use of whatever means possible. And I know that there are many different types of people who like to learn different ways. Some people are very independent learners. And you just want, you're happy with you in the Bible, and if you never talk to anybody else about that, you're fine with that. I want to work with you. Other people, if they're not talking about what they're learning to somebody else, they aren't learning. Right? Those verbal processors, if you don't get to share it, what's the point? So, and I want to find a way to work with you as well. I want to be very adaptable. Uh, the good thing about being a part of Calvary Chapel is that you, I, I belong to you. So my job is to help you, not everybody, but you, to grow in knowing God's word and loving God's word and loving God's truth. And so I'm, I'm here for you. Internet, eh, I mean, I'm here for you too. But this is my offer. If you're interested in learning this book, I want to find the best way to help you learn this book. 
And so we're going, all I need you to do is sign up, rob at thecalvarywebsite.com. You send me an email, I'm interested, and then we'll start figuring out which way works best for you to engage with the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So plug is ended. Let's look at this extended passage here and listen for when the Apostle Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, talks about being a lover of truth. Okay? Starting in verse 1. And if you can read that, I did my best to make it a readable size. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to Love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Amen. So what's going on here? So if you remember your biblical history, and I'll do my best to remember it too, the Apostle Paul planted this church in a city called Thessaloniki, I think it's called nowadays, which is in Greece or Macedonia. And he wasn't there a super long time before he had to flee because people were trying to kill him. So he planted this church, taught them a lot. They didn't just get together on Sundays. They would have probably gathered for teaching multiple times a day as he would explain the gospel to these baby Christians. But because of the persecution, he had to leave. And so he ended up writing two letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, which are some of his earliest letters, as far as people say, that are written of the New Testament. And in this second letter, there's three things happening. The first thing that's happening is that the church has encountered another wave of persecutions against the church. And so chapter one is mostly devoted to encouraging them that even though right now they're being afflicted by people, God is going to one day afflict those people when the Lord Jesus comes to destroy all his enemies and exalt his bride, the church. 
But at the same time as the church is experiencing these outward persecutions, on the inside they're being unsettled because from somewhere someone has started preaching that the day of the Lord has come, that Jesus has already come back for his second coming. And they're not sure if it was like a prophetic word or a spirit or a spoken word or somebody had falsified some kind of letter. But this is the passage we're dealing with. This is the problem. Someone has told this church that had been taught that Jesus is coming again. Jesus came the first time to deal with sin. He died. He rose from the grave. He went back to heaven and he's going to come again to definitively end the uh, reign of Satan over the world and to redeem the world and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And somebody had started teaching them that Jesus had already returned, that the day of the Lord had come. I'm not sure exactly how that all worked, and we don't know what the details of the teaching were, but the church was very upset, uh, unsettled by this. And this is what the passage we're dealing with is talking about. At the same time, some people, because of an idea maybe that Jesus had come back already or was coming again, had decided that they were going to have the mooch ministry in the church and that they were going to give up working and they were just going to be living off of other people until Jesus returned or because he already had returned. And so chapter 3 is mostly devoted to rebuking these lazy layabouts who aren't contributing to, aren't taking care of themselves even though they could and aren't contributing to the welfare of the church even though they could. And he encourages the church to stop of being in relationship with them. Essentially, he excommunicates them for, for being mooches, which is not something that we would necessarily do nowadays, though maybe we should. And also puts a bit of a spin on the welfare system we have in our culture these days, but whatever. That's a different sermon, but I'll let you be unsettled by what I just said now. All right. I'm not going to try to figure out today who the man of lawlessness is, whether it's Vladimir Putin or President for Life Xi or whoever is ruling over North Korea right now. I thought that guy died, and then all of a sudden he's back or whatever. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's, I haven't put any real time trying to figure that stuff out, and whether it's a strength or a weakness, I, I don't inclined to trying to figure out that kind of stuff. Instead, what I'm going to focus on is what the Apostle Paul says is the thing that gets people through the end times final days. And so what he's talking about here in this passage, he's talking about the man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness and um, Jesus returning. And if I can summarize what he's sort of sharing here is he's where he rebukes the church right off the bat by saying, You're unsettled right now because you're believing something that is opposite to what I taught you when I was there. That's the first problem. Do you remember he he says this? Is it here? Uh, Yeah, right at the top. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So this is the first problem in Thessalonica. The Apostle Paul taught them something, and somebody else came along and contradicted contradicted what he taught them and they believed it that was the first problem and so he repeats himself teaching them about events that are going to happen before christ returns and the big thing that he talks about is this 
individual, this man of lawlessness that's going to come and he's going to set himself up over all things that call themselves God and takes the place of God and that he's going to have this ministry that comes with all power, including false signs and wonders. And just as a note, there's kind of two ways you can interpret that. Um, you could say that they're fake signs and wonders, as in like charlatan tree. That's not a word. You know, people pretending to accomplish miracles, but they're just doing it with sleight of hand and tricks. And, you know, where's the red queen? Find the red queen. And, ah, it's a miracle. The other way you can understand this is that it's real miracles, signs and wonders, but are being used to support lies instead of the truth. And as I understand it, that's how the Greek works, and that's how the that's how the scripture works, because it says that this deception is coming through Satan with all power and false signs and miracles. And if they're not real miracles, then it isn't all power. Does that make sense? Like it's real miraculous powers that are working through this man of lawlessness. The issue is that what this man of lawlessness teaches while he's performing these miracles that are getting everybody's attention is false. It contradicts the gospel and it teaches rebellion against God and lawfulness. Okay, so that's the issue. Real miracles from a real person that teach real lawlessness. And as Paul is engaging here with what the main issue is, he says that it comes with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And this is the reason why people perish. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay, that's the issue. It's not because they didn't figure out international politics. It's not because of anything else. The main issue at before Christ's return, when there is this huge culmination of spiritual warfare showing itself in conflicts of teaching and conflicts of religion and a man of lawlessness showing up and supernatural events warring against each other, the main issue between being saved and being deluded and lost is whether or not you and I love the truth. That's the issue. And if it's the issue at the end time, isn't it still the issue today? This is a big deal. This is what I'm saying. Okay, I'll wave my arms so we all know we're all on the same page. The raw thing is a big deal. The arms are a-waving. This is the point. Lovers of the truth persevere with God in life, even through the greatest spiritual warfare that will come at the end times. It's being, it's about being a lover of truth. Okay, so, and let's define the truth here because are we talking about like, Just any kind of truth. Two plus two equals four. Do we all agree on this? Yes. We love the truth. 
And thus we shall be saved. Well, maybe in basic mathematics, but let's try to define from Scripture what the truth is. And I want to make the case really clearly from the passage that we made that the truth that the Apostle Paul thinks gets you through life is the written Scriptures of the New Testament. Let's just keep reading. Starting in verse 13. So he he describes this big turning away. He describes this rebellion. He describes all this problem. But he doesn't want the Thessalonians to necessarily think that they're going to get lost. And so he shifts gears a little bit to celebrate how much they do already love the truth. And he says this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because he chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, so there's the truth again. You already have started believing the truth. You do believe the truth. That's how we know that you're Christians. That's how we know that God's chosen you because the spirit is alive in you and you believe the truth or you love the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, which is the the core of the truth that Paul's talking about, this message that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died for sins and he rose from the grave and he's reigning right now and that everyone who believes in him as Lord and Savior will be saved. This is the gospel. This is the core. So that you may obtain the glory that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here is, here's my verse, okay? Here's my verse. So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Traditions there not meaning like you have turkey for Christmas or whatever traditions. you. Who who has turkey at Christmas? Who has a ham at Christmas? Because grandma, that's what you had at grandma's house. Okay, that's one kind of tradition. Here what the tradition means is the body of truth that the, the apostles hand down to the church that they're meant to pass on to the next generation and pass on to the churches that they plant and they pass on. They're passing on truth. That's what it means, not necessarily just what you have for Christmas. Stand firm and hold on to the traditions taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Okay, so this passage, you can see Paul's mind working. He says the truth that you need to love to get through the end days, if you go through the end days, is... A few verses later, what we tell you in our letters. Right there. The part with the little F right before it. In his mind, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's saying the things we write you by our letters are the truth that if you love, you will get through the end times. These are the things that the truth in our letters, which we call the New Testament, is the truth from God to be believed so that you aren't deceived and aren't deluded and aren't led astray. And if you love these things, you will get through anything. Clear? That's my case. All right? You might strongly disagree right now, but make a better case. Don't just go with your emotions. Because we're a Bible church, okay? We want to base our teachings and our theology and our lives off the Scripture. That's where I'm coming from. That's where we're coming from as a leadership team. Uh, if, if when we come in conflict with Scriptures, guess who's going to change? We want to change. I want to change. 
And so we, you see here this great illustration of how a church can actually deal with this stuff. There's this deception that's come into the church. They were told that the day of the Lord had already come. That's not true. They would go through a process of discernment by going back to what the Apostle Paul had taught the church originally and listening to what he's teaching them now. And then he gives them a direction to love the truth, especially what the apostles taught them face to face and what they write in their scriptures. That's what it means to be a lover of the truth. So you love what God has given you in the Bible to know about Jesus and God, who God is and who we are. That is what it means to be a lover of the truth from this passage. And you hold on to that even in the face of people being raised from the dead if it's the working of Satan. Like, this is amazing, this passage here. This is, this is one of the reasons why I'm like, wave my arm about this. Uh, where are we here? There's going to be a day when the church is going to actually see all power and signs and wonders, and, but it's not going to accord with the truth, and so they're going to have to reject it. I don't care if that guy couldn't see until five minutes ago. What they're teaching isn't true. I reject. That day's coming. If it's not now, I don't know when it is. Some people thought it was like 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. I'm not saying that God doesn't do this stuff. We believe in miracles. We pray for all kinds of stuff. We believe in God activity today. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And at the same time, the Apostle Paul who raised people from the dead and struck people blind and got bit by a snake and didn't die and raised people out of their sick beds, the guy who did miracles that we would want to emulate said, someday there's going to be a time when everything that's happening is going to be a lie. And you stick with the truth. So that's why today I'm saying... We need to get our emotions in line with being lovers of the truth first and foremost. Amen? The truth of God is so important because you actually need to know the truth about God to know God. This is one of the things about God. Where do you go to see him? Good job, everybody. It was a trick question. It was one of those questions where you're just like, I don't trust this guy. You just stay quiet. Well done, church. You've been trained. He's a spirit. He's invisible. You can't see him with your naked eyes. So if you want to know him, though, you have to hear him. The spirit world speaks. What's the first thing that God did in creation? He spoke. That's how he's known. That's how he reveals himself. He speaks. And so... If we're going to know God, we, we know him through what he says and through him telling us what he means when he does stuff. And it's so important that just to jump the tracks a little bit in Romans 10, you remember that passage, Romans 9 through 11, Paul is trying to explain to the church why, though it's a tragedy that most of the Jews in the first century weren't coming to Christ, even though he's their Messiah. Paul doesn't despair because of a bunch of various reasons. But he says this about his brothers and sisters. He says, this is Romans 10, verse 1 and following. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is 
for them that they might be saved, the Jewish people of the first century. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. If there's anywhere in the scriptures that points out that you need to know truth in order to know God, it would be this. Because Paul is looking over all of the first century Judaism with all of their worship and almost every day being devoted to God and all of their not eating pork. No bacon. They're zealous for God. There's no pork and they don't meet with the Gentiles and they do their whole life is devoted to God with zeal that they're willing to kill and die for God. And Paul says it gets them nowhere because their zeal is not based on knowledge. The knowledge that God has gifted his righteousness to people through Jesus Christ and you cannot establish your own. You cannot live a life that is righteous before God because the only righteousness God cares about anymore is the one he gives people for free through faith in Jesus. And Paul is looking out over all of his kinsmen and all of his people, and by and large, they reject that knowledge. And so they are not saved, even though they live every day in a zeal for a God they don't know. Paul says that they're lost because of it. Christians, true true truth is so important to us. We're the truth religion. And so, we're meant to live with a zeal for the truth. So how does this hit us? Well, if you're anything like me, you might admit that you know that deep down you're emotionally invested in things being true or seeing the world a certain way before you open the scriptures to read it. We're emotionally invested in, in the world being a certain way, in thinking a certain way. And we want things to stay the same and don't necessarily want God to mess up what we're doing with some words written in some books 2,000 years ago. Am I the only one? We're emotionally invested in what we think is true sometimes before listening to God about it. I remember when I was years ago, it feels like a lifetime ago, I was going to school at Regent out in Vancouver. And it was such a weird time because I was really excited to go there to study the New Testament. And the guy who was kind of the pastor over our family of churches, his name was Barney Coombs. He's gone on to be with the Lord. And before I went, he he took me aside and just said, Rob, I'm really excited that you're excited to go learn about the Bible at Regent. I'm a little bit concerned that they're moving from a college that's devoted to the truth of Scripture to a college that's devoted to academic excellence. And those things are often not the same. So he just said, I'm concerned. And I was so angry because I just wanted to go there and enjoy it and he, he messed it up by saying, you've you got to keep your brain turned on when you go there and be willing to discern and test. And I was, I, and I was, I was really angry. And I, like two years later, I sent him this angry letter about it after I was almost done my studies. 
And, but he was partially right. Not everyone at my university was a big proponent of the authority of Scripture and, um, But, I mean, it was good because that's how I ended up in Greek and Hebrew because I was like, well, it's hard to go wrong with just learning the ancient languages. Like, um, And I love them. They're, they were, are, are a real gift to me. But I remember just having these times where I would be holding my Bible at Regent and just weeping, knowing that if I really, 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 really thought that these were the words of God, it was going to cost me everything, and I didn't want it to cost me everything. Just knowing, like, if if these really, really, really are the words of God, then I'm never going to be right in an argument with Scripture. And I felt constrained and threatened and angry, and I just didn't want to submit until I did. And then I made up with Barney and apologized, and it was all great. Thought number one about becoming a lover of truth. It's really good to realize that often the thing that keeps us from engaging with truth is that we're emotionally invested in something other than biblical truth. And we don't want to change. Deep down we know. Don't really want to change. When you see that in your heart, don't participate with that. Truth is wonderful. So I'll tell you about a, a time recently that where, I, where, where it happened to me again. Being a lover of truth. Being a lover of truth means being open to being proven wrong, being open to being devastated by what God actually says. So I was thinking about 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 13. And uh, it's that wonderful love chapter, right? Marriage chapter, best chapter in the Bible. No, no it's not the best chapter in the Bible. It's just devastating this is what paul says if i speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love i'm a noisy gong and a clown clanging cymbal and this is the worst one and if i have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if i have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love i am nothing and i read that i'm like those are the things i like Mysteries, knowledge, I love knowledge. Knowledge is the best. I'm a Bible guy. Knowledge is the best. And love is so hard. And God's just standing there saying, still nothing, Rob. That's devastating to me. I hate love. It's so scary and costly and humbling to be patient and kind and not boastful and not get your own way. Love is the worst. Knowledge is the best. You get to go in front of crowds of people and impress them. Get your WhatsApp blown up afterwards. This is devastating for me. And I get to go, oh, ignore or 
This is God talking. So this is weird. Like, you want to know a little insight into Rob Belfort? I'm trying to get emotionally through realizing that most of the stuff I'm excited about isn't important. Because this church exists for the love of Christ. And I exist for the love of Christ. I find it so hard. So I, I do a lot of being nothing. And that's the truth. And a lover of the truth says, that's the truth. I need to change. Ah, God is so kind. What a great dad to insist on us knowing the truth so we can walk with him and be transformed into the likeness of Christ and escape from the traps of the enemy. Number one, if you want to be a lover of the truth, notice when your emotions don't want to participate with the truth. Number two, don't underestimate how much you're being influenced by the outside culture. Lovers of the truth expect to always have to be warring against what the outside culture is doing. I don't think any of us could ever underestimate how much we're being influenced by outside culture. Many of us, me included, will spend three or four or five or ten times more time in every single day listening to the news, listening to music, Christian music great, listening to the radio, listening to watching movies and playing video games than we do just being with God's truth. Most of us are eating way more world than we are Jesus as far as media consumption. Thus, it seems wise to me that we should really just assume there's a lot of cultural influence going on that doesn't necessarily line up with the truth of God. Let's just pick uh, COVID, for instance. Anybody heard of COVID before? COVID-19? Don't laugh. Okay, just think about the messages you've been hearing about it lately. And what you believe about it. I stumbled across an essay that C.S. Lewis did that somebody else read and put online called Living in the Atomic Age. And I listened to it recently and I was like, ah, he did it again. C.S. Lewis is the beast. He's so good. His issue for his lifetime was not a pandemic. It was the invention of the nuclear bomb and the Cold War and the arms race and what England and America and Russia, I guess, and everyone was living in constant fear of was not an invisible disease where there's a one in thousand chance you might die for it, but that hundreds of nuclear missiles would be launched around the world destroying every major city. That's what they were afraid of. Global nuclear holocaust. That's what they lived in daily fear of. And that's why, you know, some houses that are really old will have like bomb shelters in them in the States. You ever heard of like bomb shelters? Just full of peanut butter and water and they just the idea being that when the mushroom clouds are going off, you go run in your basement and it probably wouldn't do anything. But, you know, there was something to sell. That was their version of our masks nowadays. There's always something to sell. And this is what he says. He's thinking about it, and this is what he says. He says, if you really think about it, there's two options. Number one, there is no God. There's just the material world and a scientific way of looking at the world. And if you ask any scientist, they will tell you eventually everything is going to die. 
You're going to die. I'm going to die. Every star is going to burn out. Everything will end up in nothing tomorrow. If we're just molecules and life doesn't matter and all the stars are going to burn out, what's the difference if you check out of the hotel at 9 a.m. versus if you check out of the hotel at 11 a.m.? Zero. But, he says, if there is a God and there is a spiritual world, the only life worth living is a good one. The only life worth living is a life of faith and love. And so it's better to die than to survive by acting like Satan and being selfish and fearful and attacking and craven. It's better to die in a world where God is king than to live if the price of living is becoming more evil, says C.S. Lewis. Any truth for us today? Do you ever hear the message, it's better to die courageous, full of love, than to survive COVID if you have to, like, be crazy? Have you ever been encouraged by anybody to be courageous and full of love in this season? Like, Christians used to run towards the diseases. And I know a lot of us are. I think there was a... Somebody in a missions organization we may be connected with that were really excited that they made the last flight to Syria before everything got shut down from Canada. Awesome. I have no idea what time it is. Yeah. Oh, I got tons of time. Did you know it's only 9.20 in Alberta? There's always a better way of looking at things. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be crazy and it's great to be wise and please socially distance. And if we go code code orange, we'll do our best to respect that. But COVID is not an excuse to be evil, Christian. You get in the word, you get encouraged by the Psalms, you get encouraged by Christ, you, you obey. Every good event is a time to obey and every bad event is a time to obey. And I'm preaching to myself because my adrenaline gland has not been very quiet since mid-March. Number three, lovers of the truth don't pit scripture against scripture or edit things out. One of the first heresies that came into the church was this guy named Marcion. And he had this picture of a loving God that he didn't see in the Old Testament or most of the New Testament. So what he did is we just cut out the Old Testament and he chopped out most of the Gospels and a lot of Paul's letters until he had this very, very, very small Bible that was a picture of a God of love that he thought was worthy of being called a God of love. That's not good. That's not being a lover of the truth. That's being a lover of Marcion. I love me so much. I want a God that looks just like how I think God should be. That was his heart. The gift he was to the church is that most of the church responded and said, we don't want to put up with that. These are our books, Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. I think those are the numbers. And these are our books. And the church responded by canonizing the books of, of the Bible. Said, no, these are our books. Hooray. But we still do have issues with sometimes pitting Scripture against Scripture in a way that nullifies parts of Scriptures that shouldn't be nullified. Let me just give you some examples. Um, There are teachers nowadays who say things like, 
Jesus taught the real gospel of the kingdom, and Paul messed it up. And they'll pit the gospels against the letters, and they'll say, maybe they sometimes call themselves even like red-letter red Christians or whatever, and they have like a important within the important. The stories of Jesus are the most important ones. They tell us how to live. Paul, sometimes okay, but often not okay. So there, that's one way of doing it that I've heard. Another one that's less popular, but I've also heard was um, this one guy who really liked the letters of Paul and the word grace, and he didn't find it in the Gospels very much. And so he said, like, everything that Jesus did before he died on the cross was just Old Testament, doesn't count, because the Sermon on the Mount would be in there where it's like a lot of telling you how to live. So anything that happened before the cross, that doesn't count for Christians, only after Jesus raised from the dead. And that way he managed to get rid of all the Gospels and all of Jesus' teachings and just keep Paul. Um, and there's, there's just total disastrous problems with both those ways of looking at Scripture. Number one, um, if you think that the apostles messed up the gospel message, then all you're saying is that Jesus sucks at picking and training apostles. Especially Paul, because Jesus actually came back from heaven to handpick Paul and then took Paul at some time to heaven to train him supernaturally in the gospel. And so if Paul has messed up the gospel, all you're saying is Jesus doesn't know how to train apostles. Oops. And if you say that the, what happened before the cross happened, and because you, you don't like what happened beforehand, then why in the world would anybody write a book to the church where nothing counted? All you're saying is that the evangelists wasted their lives going around telling people the story of Jesus if none of it counted. And we should just get rid of those books because all of us are being deceived. So, so no, our job is to take the scriptures God has delivered to us, read them accurately in their positions, in context, in the right proportion, and not try to divvy things up. I think about it like this. Do you remember that story in the book of Judges where the Levite's wife runs away and then he goes and catches her and then brings her back to that town and they spend the night and the hordes come out and they abuse the woman and then he's all upset so he chops up her body and sends it throughout Israel in order to provoke a civil war. Does anybody remember that story? Okay. Who would be excited one day to find a leg on their doorstep? What if it's the leg of a relative? Grandma. It's grandma's leg on your doorstep. Would you be excited to find that? You don't love your grandma? You, obviously, if you're not excited to find grandma's leg on your doorstep, then you don't love grandma. Well, no, you say, Rob, I want grandma's leg attached to the rest of grandma, where her leg belongs. I want all of grandma with her appendages in the right places. I don't want her head where her leg should be. I don't want her leg where her head should be. I don't want a hand where her heart should be. I want grandma put together the right way. Amen? Christians say, I want scripture, all of it, in its right place. The gospel's doing the gospel job, and the letter's doing the letter job, and the revelation doing the re revelation job, and Isaiah doing the Isaiah job, and Genesis doing the Genesis job. I want all my Bible in the right place, connected in the right ways. That's what we want, because we love Grandma. Amen?
Amen. Okay, you guys have been great. We should wrap this up here. This is my exhortation to us. I would love for us just to hear afresh what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians about the importance of being zealous for holding on to biblical truth in a world full of persecutions from without and disturbances from within where all the pressure is going to be, don't believe the truth, don't believe the truth, knowing that the Apostle Paul told us at least for the end times, loving the truth is what will prove that you are a son or daughter of God, even in the face of miracles saying, don't believe the truth. And may we... Be zealous afresh for reading our Bibles and signing up for a Galatians Bible study and making sharing the word of God something we do together. Amen. Why don't we stand and I'll pray over us. Should we get should we get serious? Okay. if you really struggle with reading your Bible. Why don't you put up your hand? Let's just confess it. You find it boring. You, find, you don't have the time. Okay, I love you guys. I love you. I love you. I love you. And as much as you're here, I want you in my church. Not that it's my church. I'm in your church. I want to be in your church. Let's ask God to do something about it and then obey his leadings. Amen. So, Father, here we are, your people. Regularly, we find your word, not what our emotions might want out of it. But God, I pray that you would make us lovers of the truth, that you would inspire delight from your word, and that we would welcome um, being pierced by the word. Lord, that we would make better choices. Lord, even if we need to be convicted today about some of the lifestyle choices we're doing that get in the way of things, Lord, would you give us zeal? and grace and wisdom to make little choices. Father, where the enemy comes to sabotage our scripture time by saying it's never enough, it's never enough, it's never enough, in the name of Jesus, we take authority over that condemnation, say, no, one line of scripture has all the power to do whatever God needs it to. And so just scripture is enough. And Lord, let us have just hope, even in one line brought to our minds of Scripture, that it's enough, without always condemning that it's never enough. And so, Lord, would you raise up your church to be true lovers of truth? In Jesus' name, amen.